thank you very much for uh, having me here today. Um, a little bit of a different talk now. Um, uh, I'm going to talk on some work that we've done recently in the Department of Primary Care, which is more about treating obesity um, and how we um, have moved from the research and collecting data from the research to try and implement this as a treatment that's implemented into routine care. So I know that I'm probably preaching to the choir, but we know that obesity is such a large problem, both in the UK and worldwide. And in 2016, the World Health Organization estimated that approximately 2 billion adults age 18 or older were overweight. And of these, about 650 million were obese. And that roughly equates to about 40% of adults um, who are overweight and about 13% of the adult population who are obese. And if we plotted these prevalent statistics um, year by year, I think worryingly what we would see is uh, an increase from roughly the post-war periods to present day. And we can see that the prevalence has roughly tripled from uh, 1975 to 2016. And I think of even more importance is um, that we're not seeing any waning of these prevalences, so it does seem to still be on the increase. So what are the consequences of obesity? Now a raised BMI that is either within the overweight range, so BMI above 25 or a BMI above 30, is a major risk factor for non-communicable diseases. And these diseases are things such as cardiovascular disease, uh, mainly heart attack and stroke, uh, type two diabetes, musculoskeletal disorders, so having a raised BMI um, is a major risk factor for many non-communicable diseases, um, cardiovascular diseases, which are the leading cause of death in 2012, uh, a major cause of type 2 diabetes, um, things such as osteoarthritis, um, which is a highly dis disabling degenerative disease, certain cancers, um, and I think important to note is the risk of these diseases increases with BMI roughly in a linear fashion. Um, however, um, all is, it's not, not such a negative story that we can reduce the risk of these diseases if weight is returned back again in a linear fashion. So with um, each reduction in BMI unit, you get a, a reduced risk of these diseases. So fundamentally, the uh, consequence, obesity uh, occurs as a consequence of the long-term excess in energy intake relative to um, energy expenditure. Um, and in order to lose weight, we need to reverse this equation so that energy intake um, is lower than energy expenditure. That, and this can be done either via dietary means or increasing phys physical activity or in ideal situations by doing both at the same time. And I don't want to undermine um, the importance of preventative strategies um, because I think these are really key to... Um, reducing the increased prevalence of obesity that we see. And I was at the um, Association for Obesity Conference um, UK last week, and Professor John Blundell received a Lifetime Achievement Award, and my colleague and I were chatting to him afterwards and said, if you became Prime Minister, what laws would you have to combat obesity? And he said that he would make it illegal for anybody who was normal weight to become overweight and anybody who was overweight to become obese. And I think that's really interesting because I think once you 
do you get um, get the key to these preventative strategies would have a, a big influence on the overall prevalence. However, my work and the work that we've been doing in the Department of Primary Care is really focused uh, on the treatment options that we have and developing effective treatment options um, that can be used and utilised within a routine care environment. And one of the things we've been doing lately um, is the Total Diet Replacement Programme. So you might have heard of these called crash diets, low energy diets, soups and shakes diets. Um, we've coined the phrase total diet replacement because we think that this um, describes them rather well. And what we, we mean by this um, is it's a dietary programme in which you replace all your foods with specially formulated low energy um, replacement products and these are typically things like soups, shakes and bars and if you follow the program as directed um, you will, uh, your energy intake will be roughly 800 to 1200 calories a day and it provides all the essential vitamins uh, and nutrients that you require for health. Um, of importance, we don't just say that it's a dietary strategy, it's a programme, and this uh, total diet replacement um, is used in combina combination with regular behavioural support, and that will take into account things like goal setting, motivation, feedback, and also problem solving. So what was the evidence um, for these total diet, low energy diet replacement programs before we engaged on our recent trial? So these are not new diets, they've been used for a long time, um, they've been used um, in the University of Cambridge by John Garrow where he put people into the metabolic calorimeter um, and by Nick Finer who had put people on milk diets with multivitamin replacements. So before we engaged on the trial, we undertook a systematic review which compared the effectiveness of these very low energy diets, that is diets that are typically less than 800 calories a day, focused on the soups and shakes, compared with a control diet which encompassed a behavioural weight management programme, so that would be just typically some of the, the behavioural advice. Uh, and what we could see um, is there were several um, randomised control trials that compared these diets with a weight outcome uh, at 12 months. And what we saw was that there was a, an additional 4.3 kilos weight loss at 12 months in the patients who used the very low energy diet program compared with a behavioural weight management program. I think to note is that the uh, patients in the behavioural weight management program also lose weight, so that isn't the absolute weight, it's the difference between the two groups. But what we were really interested in is whether a, a programme like the um, Total Diet Replacement Programme could be implemented into routine care. Now most people in the UK have a GP and the GP acts as the gatekeeper to lots of different care services and we felt that if a treatment for overweight and obesity could be implemented by a GP it would really have um, access to the majority of the population. And that's where we uh, embarked on the droplet study which we undertook uh, from 2015 uh, and we're just following the uh, three-year follow-up is just uh, concluding. Uh, and we recruited 10 GP practices in the Oxfordshire region and what they did is they searched their electronic record for patients who had a last recorded uh, BMI of above 30 so that they were obese and we excluded any patients who were treated with insulin or who had contraindications to undertaking a total diet replacement but in general we took all comers so we took any patients who had type 2 diabetes and also patients with hypertension and 
Of these patients, they were randomised to one of two weight loss treatments. So the intervention was referral to a commercial total diet replacement programme. So that was roughly 810 calories for eight weeks in which they replaced all their foods with the formula food products. That was followed by a four-week gradual food reintroduction and then a 12-week weight loss maintenance programme. Um, the other 50% of participants were randomised to a comparator group and this was a nurse-led behavioural support, uh, behavioural weight management programme which we called the usual care. So that was some advice from the practice nurse uh, in a series of appointments over 12 weeks which includes uh, advice on cutting portion size, increasing physical activity and making swaps for the different kinds of foods, so foods that were lower in saturated fat and sugar. The primary outcome was weight loss at one year, but we also had a raft of secondary outcomes which included um, health outcomes such as blood pressure, lipids, HbA1c and quality of life. So one of the important things is when you embark on a total diet replacement programme, you see rapid changes in hydration and body weight, particularly within the first few weeks of treatment. And patients who took medications for um, type 2 diabetes or hypertension at the, at, at the start of the programme uh, needed to have these medications adjusted um, in order to avoid any adverse events that might occur. And we did quite a lot of scoping um, in order to provide the uh, clinicians with guidance um, on what um, medication changes to make. And in general, these were that patients were taken off all of their uh, antihypertensive medications and taken off all anti-diabetic medications apart from metformin, which they continued, and their statins, if they took those, continued as normal. Um, so we involved the patients and the public in the protocol and the procedures development, uh, which was in consultation with our weight management panel, which we run in the Department of Primary Care. So all research that we conduct, we try and scope out to see what the public and patient views are and in whether we can adjust um, any of our intended procedures um, in order to better meet the needs of this group. Um, they were also involved in the development of the medication guidelines review and we had two public members on the trial steering committee um, who met biannually while the trial was ongoing. So the results, what did we see? So these, this is the weight loss trajectories over the first year of the study and as you can see within the first three and six months patients in both groups lost weight. And by one year, patients in the um, total diet replacement group had lost, on average, about 11 kilos. And patients in the usual care group had lost, on average, about 3 kilos. And this made an adjusted treatment difference of 7 kilos greater weight loss in the total diet replacement group compared with the usual care group. And I think what I would just like to take from this is these are average weight losses. There is a great deal of heterogeneity in um, what is achieved and this is usually related to um, the adherence or attendance at the programme. So patients who drop out, we're doing some analysis for an additional paper at the moment and what we're looking at is um, patients who drop out from the total diet replacement or the usual care early on tend to fare much worse at one year than the patients who continue and finish as per protocol. So clinically... Um, the guidance suggests that we should advise patients who are uh, patients with overweight or obesity to um, 
try and lose at least five or ten percent of their body weight in order to see the health benefits and uh, what we looked at um, was we compared the groups in the numbers of participants who achieved this five or ten percent um, weight loss compared to their baseline weight um, I don't really like these cutoffs because I think that um, it makes people feel as though they haven't succeeded if they achieve it and in reality what the difference is between somebody who achieves 4.9% um, weight loss compared to somebody who achieves 5.1% is probably negligible. Um, however, what we did see is that patients were about five times more likely to achieve these arbitrary cutoffs um, of weight loss in the treatment group, that's, that is the, the patients who receive the total diet replacement, um, compared with those who received the usual care, uh, which was a relatively effective treatment in which they lost about three kilos at one year. When we look at some of the other biochemical outcomes, we see that um, there were reductions in uh, blood pressure, both systolic and diastolic, HbA1c, LDL cholesterol, uh, and Q-risk, which is a composite measure of cardiovascular disease risk. And this tends to actually increase with age if you make no changes to your medication, lifestyle, etc. Um, but what we can see in the total diet replacement group, even though they get older by one year at the end of the trial, their Q-risk um, actually is reduced by one percentage point. Um, we also collected the EQ5D, which is a measure of quality of life, and that's so that we could um, conduct our um, cost-effectiveness analysis, which I'll talk about in a second. So one of the things that people are really concerned about in the total diet replacement is that typically and historically we've told people that the most healthy way to lose weight is to reduce your energy intake by roughly 500 calories a day and you'll see a gradual weight loss. Um, however, this is really difficult for patients because in order to see the 5 or 10% that they're meant to uh, aim for, um, it takes a long period of time and lots of mental effort. And what we're doing with the total diet replacement is condensing this into a short shorter period of time. So in order to look at any adverse events that were seen in the um, total diet replacement group, um, we recorded these during the first three months, that is when they were undergoing active treatment, uh, and, and at six months for any gallstone related events, um, this is to allow for diagnostic delay. So out of all adverse events, um, these were reported in 52% uh, of patients in the total diet replacement group and 30% of patients in the usual care group, and that's an excess of one in five cases. Um, the most common adverse events um, of excess in the total diet replacement group were constipation, fatigue, headache and dizziness. However, I think important to note is that when we looked at the adverse events that were classed as moderate or greater severity, and that is things that have an impact on your daily life, they were roughly the same between the groups. So 11% in the TDR and 12% of participants in the usual care reported having one of these moderate or greater um, adverse events. We did have one serious adverse event during the trial, and this um, occurred, um, we deemed that it wasn't related to the treatment. It occurred after randomization, but before initiation of any treatment. So um, although the patient was in the total diet replacement group, that person went on and successfully completed the program. So we, we feel that um, this is a 
evidence that um, it's an effective treatment for obesity and as I mentioned we've gone on to look at the longer term weight loss and health outcomes and we've been completing those three-year follow-ups at the end of September. However for any treatment to be um, taken on as a usual treatment by the NHS not only needs to be clinically effective but also needs to show cost effectiveness. So we went on to look at what is the long-term effectiveness and cost effectiveness of the total diet replacement programme. And in order to do this, we estimate life years and quality adjusted life years of healthcare costs from the UK population by sex and age using a model. Um, and the model was the prime time model, which um, looks at um, the impact of changes in the BMI distribution on mortality, um, as well as um, non-communicable diseases that are associated with obesity, type 2 diabetes, coronary heart disease, um, and certain cancers. And we use data from population cohort studies and registers, uh, as well as epidemiological studies, um, to uh, model the, the impact that the reduction in these incidences of non-communicable diseases by the change that we would estimate in BMI would have. And these are offset by the costs of the programme. So as you might expect, any weight loss treatment um, it, uh, has a large upfront cost, so the benefits are seen longer term. And we estimated that from the programme, the TDR programme will cost roughly £800 up front, um, compared with around £34, in which we estimated it would cost to deliver the nurse-led usual care treatment. So our um, cost effectiveness largely depends on what happens to weight tra trajectories. And as I said, for this droplet trial, the primary outcome was weight uh, at 12 months. Uh, but in order to make assumptions about what happens to weight in the longer term, we used um, data from other randomised controlled trials as well as a worst-case scenario. So our worst-case scenario is that all the participants would have regained the weight and their weight would be back to what they were at the beginning of the trial by five years. Um, however, if we look at evidence uh, from large uh, randomised controlled trials, including the Diabetes Prevention Programme in the US, what we actually see is that we do see weight regain, as we do with all programmes. However, weight regain never actually gets back to the level it was at baseline, and we use this as our second assumption that participants maintained um, their weight one kilo lighter than they were at baseline at five years, and this continued longer term. So when we use their healthcare costs um, and calculate the additional costs per quality of life adjusted years, um, we um, come with, up with the conclusion that this is a uh, £12,955 per, qual yeah, per quality difference, which meets the cost effectiveness um, deemed by the, um, the NHS, the cost per quality. Um, so if we made the assumption that all the weight is regained by five years, that would be the cost per quality. However, if we use the alternative um, assumption using the DPP data, the cost per quality go to £3,203. Uh, and both of these um, are below the threshold um, suggested by the NHS of £20,000 uh, per quality. When we look at our subgroups, um, as, I, as I explained, there's a large amount of heterogeneity in the data, but when we look at the uh, incremental cost effectiveness uh, in men and women, although there are differences, um, they both, again, 
meets the cost effectiveness threshold. Uh, and when we look at different age groups, um, we see this kind of linear effect um, for the return to baseline and again for the um, maintaining one kilo's weight loss beyond five years. And it does appear that um, the treatment is more cost effective in the older population who are at higher risk of developing some of the non-communicable diseases. So again, this is similar, um, but for um, a starting BMI. So again, for people who have a higher starting BMI, the treatment is more cost effective. Um, and we published these results. They were published in the BMJ around this time last year. And the study um, attracted lots of media attention uh, from newspapers, bloggers, um, etc., but also from the, um, from the NHS who as part of their long-term plan committed to trialling um, this TDR treatment in 5,000 patients across the UK. Um, and these would be patients with type 2 diabetes. They do tend to be at higher risk um, and higher costs because of their type 2 diabetes. Um, and we've been working with the steering committee, who I believe have put a call out to tender for providers to deliver the total diet replacement. Um, there's going to be uh, subtle nuances between how you run a trial and how treatment is offered within um, a routine care setting. But hopefully this will be rolled out uh, in April. Um, and, some of, and we have been commissioned to do the evaluation of this programme. So we'll um, be looking at um, the clinical and cost effectiveness of this treatment um, when it's implemented in a routine care setting. So in summary, referral to a commercial total diet replacement programme was feasible, acceptable, safe and clinically and cost effective treatment for obesity in routine primary care. Weight losses average about 10 kilos at one year and about 50% of patients lose about 10% of their body weight. The cost per quality is below the £20,000 threshold, usually considered cost-effective by the NHS, and becomes more cost-effective in the higher-risk groups. We see significant improvements in biomarkers of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, and another trial that was conducted kind of in tandem by another group in Newcastle and Glasgow suggests that around 45% of patients with type 2 diabetes can cease their medication when they undergo this kind of treatment. However, total diet replacement is not currently recommended by NICE. In fact, they actively discourage it and suggest it should only be used um, in instances where acute weight loss is required, so such as prior to a knee replacement or hip replacement surgery. Um, however, it is widely available for patients that are willing to self-fund uh, and patients who take any medications would need to do this um, with support from their GP for these medication adjustments.